Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's show with the brilliant Bjorn Lomborg, I just wanted to say a quick word about Spike Supporters. Spike Supporters is our way of giving back to those of you who support our work. Spike has no paywall and no subscriptions. We rely on the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself to keep us going and growing. So sign up to become a Spike supporter today and you'll not only help Spike to reach more people, you'll also get some exciting perks in return, including discounts on events and on everything in our shop and much, much more. To find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Any kind of net zero is going to be phenomenally expensive. $11,300 in cost per person per year in the US by 2050. This is just simply not sustainable. What we have to realize is climate is a problem, but climate policies also have real and substantial costs. If we go to net zero, sure, we're reducing the impacts from climate change, but we're dramatically ramping up the damages from climate policy. We have to find a way that's, if you will, in between. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by returning guest Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn is one of the most sensible and soothing voices in the climate change debate. He is a Danish author, commentator and sceptical environmentalist. Bjorn has written extensively on why climate change is a problem, but not the end of the world. He is the author of numerous books, including The Skeptical Environmentalist, Measuring the Real State of the World, Cool It, The Skeptical Environmentalist's Guide to Global Warming, and published last year, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. So Bjorn, uh, world leaders are about to gather in Glasgow for the United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP26. And there will be lots of discussion and lots of statements and dashed hopes and ambitions and all the rest of it that we see at these kinds of gatherings. I wanted to kick off just by asking you, given that this event is happening soon, how do you conceive of these kinds of global gatherings? What do you think they're for? And do you think they do any good in terms of either tackling climate change or making the world a better place? Well, they probably make the world a slightly better place. But I mean, the giveaway <laughs> is in 26. This is the 26th time we're trying to do this. Uh, remember, we've been trying to do climate policy at least since 1992 with the Rio Treaty. And so we've done Rio. We failed, or the entire rich world failed to do that. Uh, we did Kyoto, where most parties actually failed to live up to their promises. Now we have Paris and, and COP26 in Glasgow is supposed to be even more than Paris. Uh, and, and there is a real risk, and we've seen that a lot of times, that these gatherings merely become places where we promise lots of nice sounding stuff and then don't deliver later. And in that sense, of course, it's not only not a good idea, it actually means we end up spending lots of money and not reaching the targets that would actually help fix climate change. And we also ignore all the other 
and smarter ways both to tackle climate and, of course, all the other problems in the world. So while it certainly has good intentions, I think it might marginally make the world a better place, but there's certainly a lot better ways we could both tackle climate and especially remember all the other problems in the world. So let's talk about some of the ideas and suggestions that are going around at the moment in terms of tackling climate change, in terms of holding back what is very often presented to to us as the forthcoming apocalypse about to rain down on humanity. So one idea that is uh, talked about a lot at the moment is net zero, the idea of getting to a net zero carbon use by 2050, 2030, 2025, depending on how mad uh, the, the proposals are. You believe that net zero is going to be an incredibly expensive idea and a problematic idea. Can you just explain to us how you understand net zero and why you think it's not the best approach for people to be taking? Well, I think there's two ways to look at this. First, you've got to realize that any kind of net zero is going to be phenomenally expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a new nature study out that showed they, they couldn't actually get the model to give uh, Biden's net zero for the US, but they managed almost. So 95% reduction, so 5% away from Biden's promise of net zero by 2050. And the cost was 11.9% of US GDP. So that you know uh, equates to about $11,300 in cost per person per mm-hmm. year in the US by 2050. Remember, a majority of Americans are not willing to vote for a $24 increase in cost because of global warming. So this is about 500 times that cost. This is just simply not sustainable. Remember, we might have seven presidents, certainly lots of Congresses until 2050. And if you're proposing something that's so phenomenally more expensive than what voters are willing to pay, you're not likely to see this through to 2050. But I think there's an other way to think about this. So this is, you know, just sort of the practical thing. It's just too expensive to ever happen with any realistic current technology. The other point is to recognize that net zero or going to one extreme is rarely the correct solution. Mm -hmm. If you look at another man-made problem, namely traffic deaths, so traffic deaths probably cost about a million deaths around the world. Uh, We know it's entirely man-made, and we could just stop the whole thing by setting speed limits at five kilometers an hour, and nobody would die, maybe except from boredom. Uh, but, But the reality, of course, is you don't do that because you realize that there are other costs involved in only being able to go five kilometers an hour. This is why, if you're not German, none of us are saying you can just go as fast as you possibly want. And none of us is going uh, saying you can only go five kilometers an hour. There's a reasonable conversation in most countries Should on, on highways, should we go 90 or should we go 130 kilometers an hour? But nobody's saying zero. And that's the equivalent in the climate conversation. What we have to realize is climate is a problem. So it's a real cost. It's something we want to avoid. But climate policies also have real and substantial costs. That's also something we want to avoid. If we do nothing against climate, obviously the climate policy cost is zero, but the climate damages are real and substantial. But if we go to net zero, sure, we're... reducing the impacts from climate change, but we're dramatically ramping up the damages from climate policy. We have to find a way 
that's, if you will, in between. Actually, this is what uh, uh, William Nordhaus, a professor in climate economics at Yale University, he got the Nobel Prize for in 2018. He's the only climate economist to get the Nobel Prize. And it's basically to realize if you have to pay both climate damages and climate policy damages, we should minimize the two. The net zero proposal is simply nothing of the kind. So not only is it bad economics, but it's also bad politics. It's just never going to happen. That's a very good description of how these often well-intended policies can end up having, uh, causing a lot of collateral damage and a lot of uh, expense and a lot of problems outside of the climate problem itself. But then there's also the question of how effective net zero would be at reducing the climate change problem or at uh, reducing global temperatures. And you recently cited the UN's climate model, which says that even if the US were to go carbon neutral now, the impact on uh, a global temperature would be to bring it down by about 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Because one of the criticisms I've made of net zero is that it is such a sweeping policy that would necessitate having a, a very palpable destructive impact on jobs, on people's living standards, and also on development in the third world. But then alongside that, there is the problem that it wouldn't even have a significant impact on the problem that people are addressing. So firstly, could you explain um, why net zero would not have the enormous impact people think it might? But also, why has it nonetheless become the great rallying cry of environmentalists at this precise moment? So the first reason is simply uh, take a sort of standard scenario from the UN uh, middle of the road scenario for the 21st century and then deduct uh, the US emissions from that and run it through the UN climate model and you get the difference. So basically, it's a very small difference. It's 0.3 uh, degree Fahrenheit or 0.16 degrees centigrade. So you won't really be able to notice the difference in uh, in 80 years by the end of the century. It's even smaller for the EU if the entire EU went net zero today and stayed net zero for the rest of the century. The impact would be 0.14 degrees or 0.25 degree Fahrenheit. So look, uh, if the whole rich world, so the US, the EU, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Turkey, for some reason that's in, included in this, and, and a number of other countries. Uh, if all of these went net zero today, the impact would be about half a degree centigrade. So just under a, far, a degree Fahrenheit. Yes, you'd be able to notice it, but not by much. And the simple reason is that the vast amount of emissions that we're going to see in the 21st century mm -hmm. will come from the countries that are now not so rich. So China, mm -hmm. India, Africa, rest of South, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and Latin America. These are mostly countries that are looking to actually pull their populations out of poverty, uh, make sure that they get to a place where many of the rich countries are today. And obviously, they are not likely to think this is a great idea to say, sure, we're just going to leave everyone in poverty for you guys to have a net zero outcome. And this also indicates why it's going to be so hard to convince most countries to go net zero. You can possibly imagine rich countries to embrace this, and, and quite a few rich countries have done so. But they're not actually going to do it once the bills start to arrive, as I mentioned, you know, way before it will start costing each American period, so also children, $11,300 per year 
obviously the people who are proposing this will be voted out of office. Mm -hmm. And that will happen in the rest of the world. So the reality is net zero, I think to a very large extent, it has always been sort of the standard or innate reaction of the environmental movement to say, not good enough, more. So in some sense, a decade ago or something, when people were saying, we should cut 20, we should cut 40%, it was obvious for people to say, no, 50%. Mm. And then net zero became the next sort of obvious thing. And I predict that we will pretty soon be starting to talk about, but if the developing world want to emit more, we've got to start doing negative emissions. That it's not, (laughs) net zero is not enough and it'll be, you know, we should cut our emissions by you know 200% so that we have a minus 100%. And look, there's nothing wrong with that idea in principle. It makes sense to imagine that we could have a world where we would fix it by basically pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's how we would make negative emissions. If we can do that incredibly cheaply, we will probably do that. And that could be a substantial or maybe even the main part of the solution to global warming. But there's just no way we can do that right now without uh, incurring an enormous cost, and hence this is not going to happen. So on the question of uh, the developing world, because this does relate uh, to COP26 um, in a huge way, I think, you know, there's there are lots of people, and one of the main criticisms that uh, some people are making of COP26 is that it won't make much difference. China will still carry on growing. India will still expand. We have Brazil coming up, countries in Africa, countries which very understandably and legitimately want to achieve the kind of growth and the kind of progress and the kind of comfort that we in the West have been lucky enough to achieve over the past 200 years. So the the argument that is made uh, against spectacles like COP26 is that it won't make that much difference. And just in relation to the developing world and what surely is their right to undergo similar industrial revolutions to the ones that we have undergone here in the UK. We underwent an industrial revolution a very long time ago. It had an extraordinarily transformative impact on every single aspect of society, which can be measured in everything from life expectancy through to education levels, through to democracy. I mean, arguably the most transformative event in British history. Why do you think some environmentalists, most of whom are very decent people, good people, they care about others, but they do sometimes seem to have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to the right of developing countries to develop and to to grow and to become as wealthy at some point in the future as our countries are. What explains that blind spot, do you think? Is it simply that they have been so sucked into the idea of net zero, the idea of cleaning up the planet, the idea of saving the world, that they've lost sight of the rights of other people to come up to our standard of living? Well, I mean, if you ask them, they'll always say, of course, they should get, uh, be allowed to get rich. And they actually can get rich from uh, from utilizing uh, renewable energy. Uh, it, it always strikes me as odd that we then have to argue so strongly uh, in order to twist everybody's arm to make it happen if, if you really become all that rich from it. And of course, that really tells you, no, you probably don't. But I think it, it's simply a question of, you know, if you ask doctors, they will tell you you should spend more in healthcare. And if you ask teachers, they sh- they'll tell you you should spend more in education. I mean, the environmentalist job is to tell us we should spend more money on, on environment. I don't think it's necessarily their fault. But of course, 
we as voters and as decent people and members of uh, planet Earth, we should make sure that we worry about all of these things and not just on the things that make for the front pages or indeed the things that have the best and most catchy pictures, which unfortunately is very often where we end up. We worry a lot about the obvious in-your-face catastrophes that we see. And I'm, I'm often struck by the fact that, you know, uh, uh, people are so worked up about all these different uh, climate catastrophes that we've heard uh, in 2021, from the heat dome in the U.S. to floodings in, in, in Germany and in, in India and in China, which if you add all of them up, add up to about 6,000 people that died. This is including the ones that we still haven't seen that we're expecting will happen in 2021. Compare this to almost any other figure. So, you know, tuberculosis kills 1.5 million every year. Malnutrition still kills almost 3 million people. You can come up with so many other things. And as we talked about earlier, with uh, traffic safety, it kills a million people. Why do we have such little regard for all these other issues? Most of which, of course, are predicated on poverty. So if you're poor, you are hit harder by almost every aspect of civilization and nature, not just climate, but all kinds of other things like uh, uh, infectious diseases and so on. And and so we, I think we need to sort of recalibrate our conversation and realize, yes, global warming is a problem, but there are many, many other problems as well. And I, I think in some way, and and this is this is one of the main points that I've tried to make. Uh, and you also mentioned it at the at the outset. If we are going to have a better conversation on climate change, we need to pull the conversation away from this is the end of the world. Yeah. yeah. If it really is the end of the world, if global warming was a meteor hurtling towards Earth and, you know, we just have nine years to fix it, you know, we, we just build lots of, uh, of space shuttles and send up Bruce Willis and try to fix it, <laughs> right? That, that makes sense to say, let's just spend everything and the kitchen sink at this. But the reality is global warming is a middling problem in a world of problems, many of which arguably are much bigger. So the lack of education, lack of good health, uh, lack of food, uh, lack of security, lack of peace, all these other issues that are also important things. So just to give you a sense of proportion, uh, yeah. the UN climate panel has spent a long time also looking at what's the net cost of global warming if you try to add up all of this. Uh, and their latest estimate from the 2018 report, uh, the 1.5 degree report, was that if we do nothing about climate change, the net cost, this is not just the monetary cost, but all the cost, but translated into money, is 2.6% of global GDP by the end of the century. That's not nothing, but of course, it's not 100% either. And what you have to remember is by then, the UN estimate will be about 450% as rich as we are today. So it will feel like, because of global warming's mostly negative impacts, it will feel like we're only 434% as rich by the end of the century, not 450. Yes, that's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. Global warming does not mean the end of the world. Global warming means it gets better slightly slower. And that's a very different proposal. So, you know, global warming is not this meteor hurtling towards uh, Earth. It's more like uh, diabetes. Yeah, it's not nice. And it has real potential problems if you don't fix it. So definitely it's something we should take serious. 
but it's something we can figure out how to live with and something that we can treat and something we can moderate so that it becomes the least problematic that we can make it. But it's not necessary. It's not, you know, uh, stop eating anything or uh, stop eating sugar forever. It is about making sure that we can manage this problem and smartly. That's a, a very good rational explanation of the problem and and how serious it is, but also how unapocalyptic it is. And of course, when you describe global warming as a middling problem, your argument is very, very convincing, but of course it runs entirely counter to so much of the mainstream commentary today and mainstream activism. And I've lost count of the number of climate change protests I've seen at which young people in particular will hold up banners saying, showing the world on fire and claiming that the heat death of the planet will happen in a few years time. And I will have no future. You hear young people saying that all the time these days. And I want to talk to you a bit about this apocalyptism that has gripped the imagination in many Western countries and among many environmentalists too. And you talk about, you've talked recently about the I, the most recent IPCC report and the contrast between the report itself, which is fairly moderate and uh, makes some sensible observations and some sensible points, and the media coverage of it, which, as you described it, was at times hyperventilating. And that's uh, the, the problem there, I think, for the ordinary person in the street is that they are very unlikely to read the IPCC report. Um, I only ever scan them. I don't read them in depth. So most people see the media coverage. They see the stuff about code red. That was the, that was the uh, phrase that we saw after this most recent report came out code red for humanity. We have only a certain amount of time left. This is a disaster. So just the first question on this, how do you explain that disconnect between what the IPCC report is finding and what some climate scientists are observing and then how it gets filtered into a public discussion, which seems to be geared very much towards an apocalyptic way of thinking? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So uh, f- first of all, I would not really recommend anyone to read the whole UN, UN <laughs> climate panel report. It's, it's 4,000 pages long and that's just the, the first of three volumes. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't promise that I've, I've read all 4,000 pages. I've <laughs> read quite a bit of it, but no. Uh, and, and, and look, uh, it's absolutely right that if you actually read it, what they tell you, for instance, uh, right now, we can say with good amount of certainty that Temperatures are rising. That's the global warming is real. That there is more heavy precipitation and that there is more heat events. So more heat uh, waves and therefore probably also more heat deaths. We also can say with very uh, a great deal of certainty that there is fewer cold waves and hence fewer cold deaths. Yeah. That's about it. And then there is some stuff at the margin. This is what the UN Climate Panel report tells us. They also talk about a lot what will happen into the future, and we can perhaps uh, get more into that, for instance, with hurricanes, which is one of the biggest uh, issues and also one of the most damaging for, for humanity. Uh, they expect that we are going to see the same or fewer hurricanes, but stronger hurricanes. And stronger is worse than fewer is better. So overall, this actually is a problem. This is the reason why global warming is a real problem. It is also the reason why it is 2.6% of GDP by the end of the century and not this, you know, 99% or we're all going to be dead kind of thing. I do think 
What happens when you look at most movements is that it very easily sort of escalate into a self-reinforcing, oh, I can, I can do you one better. I can make this even worse. And of course, it's very, very hard to see this when you're standing inside of this conversation. But it's useful to look at how the world has been thinking these thoughts for a long time for a lot of different other things. So, you know, we have a long history in, in, in Western civilization of believing the end is nigh. Uh, and, and for very obvious reasons, when you extrapolate stuff into the future, it inevitably looks like it's going to go off the rails. Mm. And because you can see the problem, but you can't see the solution, the intuitive thing is to say, ah, so we're all screwed. And if you look back in the uh, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, almost everyone who was in any way mattered believed that the world was running out of food. Yeah. That is, that vast swathes of humanity were going to starve to death. And what they missed, of course, was the solution, which was the Green Revolution. Uh, the fact that we, with dwarf varieties, could basically double or triple the production of food on every hectare. And that's basically what saved humanity. Uh, or, you know, look at the limits to growth, the Club of Rome from 1972, which uh, occurred very close to the oil embargo. So it felt like, for many people, they were entirely right. They told us we're, they told us we were going to run out of everything and just be mired in runaway pollution. And we, you know, basically all of civilization would collapse. And of course, none of that actually happened. They're now trying to fiddle it to say, Oh, we were predicting global warming. But no, I mean, if you read in any reasonable way, uh, what they wrote there, they were telling us that pollution would, you know, just, we'd all just be walking around and not be able to really breathe. We need to wear gas masks, that kind of thing. No, we, you know, we got rich and we decided to have regulation. That means we've actually cleaner air in London than we've had since, you know, medieval times. Mm. Because we have technology to do this. And of course, at the same time, when you thought uh, you were going to run out of oil and gold and aluminum and everything else, the reason why you thought so was because you could see how much more uh, uh, oil the world was demanding. And you didn't know how you were going to produce all that more But of course, that's what a market economy is really good at. And what we've seen is on all of these accounts, we've become much better at finding much more at much lower cost, which is why in general, raw raw material prices not gone up despite the fact that China and many other uh, developing countries now use much, much more than we've ever done. So the short answer is these movements have a tendency to emphasize problems, forget that humanity is smart and therefore forget solutions. And that ends up being, oh my God, we're all doomed. Now, it's good to point out there's a problem, but it's terrible to both exaggerate by, for instance, leaving out adaptation. There's many of these proposals that we just know are wrong, but also, of course, taking away hope from kids. I mean, if it was true, maybe we should tell them, but it's not. That's just simply, I think, unwarranted. Just to give you one example, so a sea level rise and global warming absolutely means sea levels will rise. That all of the things equal is a problem. There's no way to you know make that into a potential good. Sea levels rising is just a bad thing. But it's not, it doesn't mean that everywhere that is now below sea level by the end of the century 
is flooded. I mean, we have about 110 million people right now living below sea level. Holland is one of the examples, but southern Vietnam and many other places, you know, much of uh, inner London is, uh, is true for the center of London as well. And people live good lives and they don't need scuba gear to get around because <laughs> we have good ways to protect people. And we have cheap ways to protect people. Just to give you a sense of proportion, the entire Dutch protection of from sea level rise since the 1950s has cost in the order of 10 billion euros that's not nothing but it's not anywhere near you know sort of something that would bankrupt the the dutch it's much less than 0.1% of gdp per year so the fundamental point is we fix many problems at very low cost. And so going around and telling people everybody's going to be flooded. So there's an editorial in the Washington Post that said, if sea levels continue to rise, 187 million people equivalent to half of Western Europe will have to move because of global warming. Yes, if we don't do anything the next 80 years. But of course, that's absolutely ridiculously unlikely. That's just simply scaremongering. So yes, it's a problem, but scaremongering both makes it worse at actually tackling the problem. But of course, it also just scares kids witless, which I think is just morally reprehensible. Absolutely. I want to take one specific example of how genuine problems get turned into existential crises and why that can be a very bad thing. Um, so I want to just ask you about the floods in Germany. So the floods in Germany were bad. They had severe consequences for people and for people's lives and for people's homes. Um, but the, it struck me that the rush to understand these floods as a direct product of global warming and a direct product of human behavior, as if it was some biblical punishment for the hubris of mankind, as you've written, that, that really didn't take into account some of the facts. And one of the facts is that in most rivers in Germany, there are decreasing flood trends rather than increasing flood trends. And the key river that flooded during the recent disaster has had higher floods uh, in the past, over the past 100 years, than it did uh, recently. So that seems to me to be a good, if tragic, example of how problems that are relatively ordinary in the scheme of things, even though they have disastrous consequences, get turned into this apocalyptic narrative. And it makes it more difficult for people to understand what the real problem might be. And it also mm. makes people feel scared about the fact that they might be living near a river or they might be living beneath sea level and so on. So just uh, explain a little bit about how you think that discussion of the German floods exploded in the way it did and why that was a bit of a problem. Well, so first of all, it's true that all of the things equal, we expect with global warming that you will see more heavy precipitation and therefore possibly also more flooding. We can actually not see that. So actually, if you look at uh, an average of about 9,000 rivers, which is the biggest data set that, uh, that has been uh, studied so far, it looks like there's actually less flooding. Much of this is because Many more rivers actually get more of their water used, for instance, for agriculture. So humans modify this often to their benefit and also reduce flood risks uh, at the, at the same time. But the reality here is what didn't work in Germany and everybody knows this is that the warning system yeah. didn't work. There has been a warning system set up since uh, the floods in 2003 and it almost didn't work. It was supposed to set off the sirens. Everybody was supposed to get text messages and so on. Almost nobody got that. 
Whose fault is that? Well, that's the local and possibly the federal politicians. Who would they like to blame? Something else. And that's why they said, oh, global warming. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's also uh, a part of this that just simply, you know, it seems like it fits into our uh, conversation right now. Anything hap- bad happens, global warming. It's an mm-hmm. easy sort of catch-all, and you can always make some sort of plausible argument that maybe it had something to do with it. But first of all, if you want to help future victims of floods in Germany, why would you focus on the thing where you can do the least good for future people at the highest cost, at yeah. very, very best. If you want net zero, you would probably not be able to tell the difference in flood risks by the end of the century for Germans. However, if you manage to fix the warning system, you could pretty much avoid all people dying from these floods. And of course, that goes to the second point of getting the numbers right, because there's there's a problem in our conversation. This is almost inevitable in the way that we're always guided by ex- specific examples. There's a problem in us looking at, oh, see a flood in Germany. What we don't see is all the floods that didn't happen, yeah. because th- that's per definition a non-news. Uh, it's possibly, if you don't run the models, it's it, it never really didn't happen. <laughs> you can't show <laughs> this didn't happen, right? But what we can do is take a look at how many people die from climate-related disasters like floods and droughts and storms and wildfires and extreme temperatures, which is what the International Disaster Database does. And what they find is that in the 1920s, so 100 years ago, on average, about half a million people died each year because of these climate-related disasters. Since then, it's been declining steadily and actually quite steeply, so that in the 2010s, that number was down to 18,000 people dying each year. Now, remember, at the same time, global population quadrupled. Hmm. So the death risk from climate disasters has dropped by more than 99%. The number in 2021, we estimate, will be about 6,000. So a third of this very, very low number. So we're almost to at 99.7% reduction. Of course, this is going to go up because, you know, 2021 was probably a fairly low uh, disaster year. But notice how this didn't feel that way. You heard yeah. one thing after another. You heard the uh, heat dome. Then you heard the uh, German floods. Then you heard about the uh, Chinese floodings. You didn't hear about uh, five floods in India and so on. But overall, these killed relatively few people. So it was about 300 to 600 people in Germany and Belgium. It was about six to 800 in the heat dome. These are fairly small numbers compared to the half million that we used to experience. Why? The vast majority of the reason is because we've gotten richer and hence Mm. much more resilient. If you want to make people less vulnerable, one of the best ways is to move them out of poverty. Uh, If a hurricane hits a rich Florida, it damages a lot, but it kills very few people. If the same hurricane or a similar hurricane hits Guatemala that is very poor, it'll eradicate as as a hurricane – sorry – I'm forgetting the name right now, uh, 1998 uh, hurricane uh, that hit uh, Guatemala that basically eradicated a third of their GDP, caused more than 10,000 people's death. So if you want to help future victims of these of these weather disasters that may be Im- impacted by climate change, you will do much, much more good 
by making sure that these people get out of poverty rather than cutting a ton of CO2. I'm always very astounded by how really well-meaning individuals, uh, you know, look at disasters in the third world, you know, oh my God, these people were flooded in India. I'm going to help them by not driving to work tomorrow. Mm. Honestly, if you want to help them, help them get into, you know, the World Trade Organization, make sure that they actually can sell us goods so that they can work themselves out of poverty, get them better education, better health care, all these other things that would help them so much better in just tackling climate change. Oh, and they would also be much better off in pretty much all other aspects. Yes, absolutely. Following on from that in terms of being better off and how that can have a transformative impact on on people's lives. Uh, You've written extensively and spoken extensively about the fact that we are not on the brink of imminent extinction. It's just not true. The apocalypse is not around the corner. This is a problem, but one that we can manage. Um, And you've also made the point which sounds very counterintuitive in the current doom-mongered climate, which is that human life is better than it has ever been before. And people's lives, people live longer, more comfortable, wealthier lives than at any time in history. And life expectancy has grown enormously, including in parts of the world which are not as rich as you and I would like them to be yet. So could you just give us an overview, just to inject a little bit of optimism into some of the listeners to the podcast? (laughs) Could you give us an overview of how things have improved and maybe say something about why you think that side of the discussion never cuts through into the into a lot of the public arena. So I think it's important to say this is not about getting people to be optimistic. This is about getting people <laughs> being realistic, right? right? That we don't forget that the human course has been enormously beneficial. So, uh, you know, perhaps the best indicator is in, in 1900, the average uh, life expectancy was around 30, maybe 32 years of age. Uh, today, it's probably 73, 74. So we have literally got two lifetimes. You and I and everybody else on this planet now have two lifetimes. And this is not just because babies survive more. It's a significant part of it is because babies don't die like flies anymore, but it is also because every other age group don't die as much. And actually it keeps going on. So every year that you and I live longer, the average life expectancy goes up another three months. How amazing is that? (laughs) And there doesn't seem to be any break in this. This is simply because we are much better at many, many technological things. There are lots of things that would have been a death sentence, uh, you know, just 20, 30 years ago that you can now be treated with. One of the best sort of uh, most obvious breakthroughs is the fact that we can now tackle most heart diseases much better. Uh, we can regulate people's blood pressure at very low cost. And we know how to make sure that that gives at least another two, three, four years for most people in their older ages. And again, it's not ages that are filled with disease, but it's actually healthy life years as well. We obviously also much better off. And while, you know, people like to sort of di- diminish that, it's typically only people who are fairly wealthy who diminish it. If you're poor, yeah. getting more money. And actually, even if you're poor just in the UK is fantastically useful in the way that mm-hmm. you can do a lot more things. We have much better healthcare. We have much better education. We've gone from a world where 80% uh, about 200 years ago, uh, were illiterate 
to a world where the vast majority, so probably 80% are literate now, and we'll probably be in a world where pretty much everyone is literate in just 50 years. We have expectations to believe that by the end of the century, we'll probably live to about 100. We will be much better educated. We'll have much greater opportunities. And one of the things we have to remember, and you talked about that before with the Industrial Revolution, much of this comes from access to lots and lots of energy. Remember, mm. life was backbreaking when the main source of energy was you. Yeah. Mm. The only yeah. other source you <laughs> had was burning wood for heat and uh, work animals like uh, you know, drought animals like uh, uh, an ox or, or a horse uh, and then a little bit of windmill in, in the background kind of thing. That was terrible backbreaking work. Today, you can do an enormous amount of stuff with servants, if you will. I, I joke because uh, uh, Matt Ridley wrote about why is it fun to be uh, Louis the Fourteenth, right? Louis the Fourteenth had, you know, <laughs> uh, basically, a, I don't know whether it was fun to be him, uh, but you know, he had he had a, a basically servants to do everything for him. But of course, the bad thing about that setup is there's a very tiny chance that you get to be the king of France, yeah. and there's a very good <laughs> chance that you get to be the servant. But what we have done with fossil fuels for now is that we've actually made everyone the king and we all have these servants, you know, our Roombas, uh, our dishwasher and our washing machine and our car and our airplane and our you know, uh, stove and everything else that makes our lives so much more comfortable. Now, again, there's no reason to believe that we can't actually make that much cleaner and possibly even uh, in, in the long run without CO2. But what we have to realize is this is a phenomenal benefit. And that's, of course, why people are so unwilling to give it up, because this is what has made the world from one where we were basically nasty, short and brutish. And I got that mangled up uh, to <laughs> one where it's pretty good to one where it can be phenomenal by the end of the century. Just to give you one example, uh, and then I'll shut up about that, but we have lifted so many people out of poverty, mo many more than a billion people out of poverty over the last 40 years or so. And so our world and data from Oxford University, uh, they like to point out that we could actually have had as the cover story for every newspaper around the world every day for the last 25 years, that in the last 24 hours, we lifted 137,000 people out of poverty. Why is that not a story? Oh, mm. oh, because it's a good story. Mm. But it is a story we need to remember. Look, there's nothing wrong with just mostly focusing on problems because that's how we fix problems. But we need to sometimes step back, realize, wait a minute, this is actually not only a good world, but also one that keeps improving. Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll be back to Brendan and Bjorn in just one moment. But before that, I just want to let you all know about Last Orders. This is the podcast all about freedom and the nanny state. We put it out each month featuring me and Chris Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs. And we've got a great episode out this week with the journalist Charlie Peters. We discuss where we're at with COVID, online anonymity, the Dave Chappelle scandal, and a bit about Scotland's miserable drinking laws as well. It's called Last Orders. You can find it on the Spiked website or wherever you find your podcasts. See you there. So uh, on that question of fixing problems and thinking about how we fix problems going ahead, 
So you mentioned earlier on about the some of the stuff that the IPCC report does highlight as being potentially problematic, for example, intensified hurricanes uh, in the future. And of course, you've written at length about the existence of numerous problems around the world, some of which are far graver in terms of their impact on human life than climate change currently is. Uh, disease, lack of education, uh, war, and other things that you, you've already referred to. So I just want to ask you, uh, in relation to those problems around the globe, which um, seem to be extraordinarily downplayed right now, uh, because climate change is increasingly the only game in town. And even when we do talk about other problems, they tend to be reflected through the issue of climate change, rather than being understood on their own terms. So thinking about poverty, malaria, tuberculosis, um, the death of children under the age of five, which still happens far more in the developing world than it happens in the developed world, all those very serious problems afflicting humankind. What is a, a preferable way to approach those problems rather than this obsession with net zero, this obsession with bringing down the heat of the planet by a tiny amount? What do you think are, are, are better uh, solutions to those kinds of problems? So I'm actually going to answer uh, with what I think many of my uh, opponents would say, but you don't need to do one or the other. We should do <laughs> all of these things. Uh, and of course, that kind of sentiment reflects something really nice. We should fix all problems. But of course, we don't have enough money to just fix everything to the fullest extent. And certainly what we're doing right now is we seem to be focusing almost exclusively on climate change and focusing on it in an incredibly ineffective and very expensive way, which means that we have virtually nothing left over, both of attention span, but also money to fix all the other problems in the world. I argue in many other ways, and that's what my main job is with the, uh, I work uh, with a think tank called the Copenhagen Consensus, where we focus on a lot of other, these other uh, uh, very cost-effective solutions to many of the world's other problems like tuberculosis. Uh, and we should certainly be funding them more. And you're absolutely right. There's something wrong with, I, I speak to a lot of these people who, who work in these areas and they're like, is there a way we can, you know, fix up our problem with global warming? Because then yes. we can hitch into <laughs> that whack and maybe get some money from there. And that's, of course, the wrong way to think about that. If you're trying to get, you know, kids to actually learn in school, maybe your first priority should not be, is there a way we can make this global warming so we can actually get people's attention to it? So we should definitely help fund all these other problems. Remember, this is in the, you know, maybe in the order of $100 billion. Uh, and we give about $150, $160 billion away every year. So we could definitely do that and still have money left over. Now, global warming is probably, uh, you know, right now we're spending maybe $600 billion on, on global warming. Uh, but the predictions is that if we actually care about the planet, if we want to go, uh, to net zero, if we want to get to the, uh, Paris agreement, we should probably be spending three, four, five trillion dollars per year. This is just, you know, that's fantasy money. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get most electorates to actually say, yeah, sure. Let's just ramp up taxes or cut down dramatically on all the other services that we get from our state in order to be able to pay this amount of money. So that's why I said we should do both. We should both find a way to fund these smart things, but then we should find a way to say, look, if we're spending $600 billion on climate change, can we spend it smarter? And the simple answer is yes, we can, because right now we're spending it mostly on subsidizing existing 
inefficient technology like solar and wind, putting up lots of it, making ourselves feel very, very good, but actually have very little impact on global emissions. For a variety of reasons, maybe we can get into that later. But the fundamental point is what we need is new technology. We talked about before how we solved the problem of uh, world hunger in the 1970s, not by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you eat a little less and then we'll ship it down to Africa or uh, Southeast Asia where they're starving. No, we did this through innovation. We did this by making seeds that were much higher yielding so that people who want to save themselves could save themselves at very low cost. We are going to do the same thing about global warming. Right now, and for the last 26 cops, or sorry, the last 25th, five cops, <laughs> and now the 26, we have been making arguments. No, no, no. Let's all try to use less. Let's fly less. Let's drive less. Let's eat less meat. Let's be, le you know, freeze more in the winter, and then we will be good uh, citizens. Of course, that will never work. We can do it a little bit, but we won't get most people to do this a lot. We're not going to get most people to accept huge bills on this account. What we do know is if we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, we'd be done. People love to say that solar and wind is down below fossil fuels, but that's at best only true when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. And, you know, most people actually want power 24-7. And in that case, it's by no means true. You know, most uh, solar energy costs an infinite amount of money at night, for instance. So the reality is we need to find either solar and or wind with much, much more storage. So that could be batteries. But remember, that right now drives up the price dramatically. But if you could envision a way that you could make solar and wind much cheaper and batteries much cheaper, then perhaps together they could still become cheaper than fossil fuels. Maybe it's fourth generation nuclear. So right now, nuclear costs a lot. Uh, we see that in the new building in Hinkle Point in, in, in Britain mm -hmm. and in, uh, in France and in Finland, many other places. They're incredibly costly to build. But, you know, Bill Gates and many others are arguing for the fourth generation nuclear. You can make them compartmentalized, much smaller, much more safe, and crucially, much, much cheaper. Let's invest in research in that because if you could, we'd be done. Everybody mm. would just switch mm. to nuclear. It could be fusion. It could be, you know, so one of my favorite examples is Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000. He has this plan of, of basically taking genetically modified algae out in the ocean surface and let them soak, soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Then you'd harvest them, and then basically <laughs> we could run our entire fossil fuel economy on this oil that was now net zero because it's just soaked up the CO2 out in the ocean like six months ago. Of course, right now it doesn't work, and it may not work ever. You know, it, it, it kind of works, but it's not at all cost effective. But the point is there are thousands of these ideas. We just need one of them to become cheaper than fossil fuels. And that is the one that will power the rest of the 21st century. So instead of spending $600 billion on things that we know are mostly not going to solve this problem, we suggest, and so uh, when I say we, it was 40 of the world's top climate economists, including uh, three Nobel laureates, looking at where can you spend resources and do the most good for climate. And what we found was one of the very best investments is to invest a lot more in research and development in green energy. So we should sixfold increase that up to about a hundred billion dollars. We can still spend waste five hundred billion of the other. You know, I, I don't propose that we should do that, but realistically we'll probably still go on doing that for a while. 
But at least let's spend smarter with that $100 billion. Let's in develop this technology that will then take over the world, not because we arm twist at COP26 and in COP50, but because we actually find a way that's cheaper and so that all nations are going to pick it up. Okay, so this brings me on to a couple of final questions I have for you in relation, firstly, in relation to what you've just outlined, which sounds eminently sensible to me. But you you talk about how a lot of the emphasis in the current discussion is on having less, living with less, doing less in order to shrink the human footprint and make the planet cleaner. Now, as you say, most people don't want to do that. They like the lives they lead. And more to the point, there are billions of people around the world who actually need a larger human footprint rather than a smaller one. So that's not going to work. But what I found when I speak to environmentalists often is that if you talk about nuclear power, as an example, many of them are, are anti-nuclear. Um, there are now a growing number of um, eco-modernists and others who are embracing the nuclear argument as a, a, a cleaner form of energy, which is very positive. But I wonder if the has the I guess the question is has the ideology gone so far? that it is actually no longer about seeking solutions to the problem that we face, i.e., in this case, the problem of climate change. And what I mean by that, has has the the idea of human hubris, the, the wickedness of mankind, the destructiveness of our modern society, of industrial society, uh, uh, the need to uh, do penance for our sins and to whip ourselves across the back and to offset our carbon, you know, all these kind of almost ritualistic uh, uh, things that have arisen around uh, some green campaigns. Do you think the ideology has simply taken over any possible discussion about how to fix the problem? And if that's the case, do we need something different to environmentalism because it simply isn't working at the moment? Hmm. Uh, so I definitely think there, there's a very obvious argument for which, yes, ideology has taken over. Uh, because when you look at people from Al Gore, uh, not so much Greta Thunberg, uh, but most other people in the environmental movement are actually saying, let's keep doing the things that haven't worked for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. If you really, really think this is the end of the world, that would not be your approach to take. And I think this, this sort of indicates that they don't quite believe what they're saying because otherwise they would be doing something else possibly something smarter. With that said, and, and just a parenthesis on, on uh, Greta Thunberg, she's actually honest in saying <laughs> the politicians are all saying it's terrible, but they aren't doing anything. And, mm. and I think that's that's a correct uh, analysis. Of course, they're not doing anything because if they actually did what the environmentalist and what Greta Thunberg is suggesting, they would be voted out of office you know, very, very fast. So the reality is you can't get people to do what they're saying. I think to a large extent, uh, nuclear very clearly was something a lot of people were very, very much against. Now they're sort of coming around. My, my main concern with nuclear is not most of the reason why many people are against nuclear. Oh, it's not safe. It's actually one of the safest things we have. Uh, what are you going to do about stories? Well, we pretty well know, uh, about this and remember almost all you know, a sort of global scale solutions to problems have significant issues like, uh, you know, solar has lots of uh, toxic leakage when we're going to store this afterwards and so on. But the fundamental point is 
nuclear is not cost effective right now. Nuclear mm. costs a lot. Shutting down existing nuclear plants, which is what they're doing in California and New York and Germany and other places, is just stupid. There's no other way, no other word for that. You basically already built the damn thing. You have mm. already committed to having to decommission it. While it's running, it costs virtually nothing and it doesn't emit any CO2. There's just no excuse for shutting down. But remember, this, this is dumb, but it's a fairly small thing. You know, it's, it's not what, what's going to solve most of the problem because most of the problem would only be solved if we could massively build a lot more nuclear power plants. And we can only do that if the price comes down dramatically. So again, let's focus on where it really matters. Namely, if we can get the price down, maybe fourth generation can do that. Certainly a lot more research and development. And again, let's not focus on one solution. We've, we've sort of had this tendency to say, Oh, it's, you know, hydrogen cars. Oh, it's electric cars. Oh, it's this. It's that. No, we don't know. And it's very unlikely that politicians would be good at knowing, but we know that as a civilization, we underinvest in research and development simply for, for the very basic reason. It's hard to tell the, uh, tell the benefits because they only come 10 or 20 years down the, down the road. So politicians don't get anything out of it. And, and it never feels like you're doing something about the problem because you're just giving money to eggheads. But the reality <laughs> is that's what solved most other problems in the world. And that's what's going to solve global warming this time around. Okay. My final question. You, you mentioned politicians there and what they don't understand and what they sometimes misinterpret and get wrong. Um, so I just want to bring it back to COP26 to bring the discussion to a close. And you said earlier that you think COP26 events like this will have, you know, a, a marginal impact. They might improve the discussion and improve things to, to a pretty small extent. So do you think it's the case that these kinds of gatherings have become a form of I guess, a, a massive virtue signal in the sense that what you have here are Western leaders who are not exactly wildly popular, um, who often don't have great solutions for the problems facing their own societies, never mind other societies. And an issue like climate change possibly allows them to appear fleetingly statesmanlike, fleetingly historic. You know, we are going to stand up against this uh, apocalypse that's around the corner. So do you think there's, and, and then if you contrast that with leaders in other countries, as we've already talked about, uh, whether it's China, Russia, Brazil, they are understandably a bit more skeptical of these kinds of events because their priorities are very different. So do you think something like COP is possibly a talking shop designed to provide a sense of momentum to politicians who are a little bit at sea, if you'll excuse the pun, <laughs> Or, or do you think, do you really, do you still believe there is an honest effort on the part of the, some of these world leaders to grapple with the kinds of problems that you and others have been talking about for a long time? So there's no doubt that there's virtue signaling involved. I mean, that's why there's 25,000 people there. Most of them certainly don't need to be there. And remember, politicians used to think of this as a great talking point. The basic point is with global warming, unlike almost all other things that you're going to promise your electorate, you can get up and say, the world is ending, but I will promise to save you. If you vote for me and remember the bill will first come much later, but now is much later. And that's mm. what a lot of politicians are now realizing that when you make promises now, 
you are probably going to be the one who have to enact them and get booted out of office for enacting them. So I think a lot of politicians are now sort of, oh, oh, this is not terribly good. So yeah, they get their, their 15 minutes of, I don't know, uh, extra fame on, on the world stage, but then they have to go back home and actually, you yeah. know, get four grueling years of infighting. So I think, yes, it's a, structure that was really set up to mimic the Montreal agreement that we did on CFC gases, uh, so the ozone layer problem. And, and the problem is it was a very bad analogy because the ozone layer, which was also a real problem, had a very specific technological solution. You know, most people remember that it was about these spray cans, but it was not. It was about you know <laughs> refrigerators and other things where DuPont already had and other substance that you could replace them with. So basically, DuPont stood to make a ton of money if the world leaders get together and say, we don't want this, we want this other st- thing that DuPont is producing. That's not very hard to get everybody to agree yeah. on. You know, it cost per- perhaps a, a couple hundred billion dollars over you know 20 or 30 years. It's something you can envision to do. This, on the other hand, the COP26, is basically trying to recast the entire human industry that has worked well for us the last 200 years and say, let's throw out that, let's rip out that growth engine and try something else. That doesn't seem like something you just want to do on a whim. Uh, and which of course is why this is really, really hard. So you have a system that's set up and that will keep repeating itself. We know that there's going to be a COP 27. We probably also know there's going to be a COP 40 and a COP 50. And, and, and you know, it'll just sort of keep on going, but it, almost forces us to make the wrong sort of policies, namely the ones where everybody comes together, make even more implausible promises for even further out in the future and then renege on them later on. I don't know, but that doesn't sound to me like saving the planet. What would, and that's what, you know, the leaders at on the sideline of Paris actually did was let's promise to spend massively more Mm -hmm. on research and development in green energy. It is cheaper than what we're currently doing. It's much more effective. It'll actually have a chance of fixing climate change. But the only downside is it doesn't feel like we're doing something right now. But of course, that's why we need to recognize global warming is a problem, not the end of the world. Bjorn Lomborg, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.